0: You do you. Let TrueGreen do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Welcome to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. This week, a look back at some of the interviews and reporting we've done on this program that gave us an idea of what this very complicated year would be. This time a year ago, we had only a glimmer of knowledge about COVID-19. It was December 31st, 2019, that the World Health Organization's China office picked up a media statement by the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission on its website of cases of what Wuhan officials called a viral pneumonia. One of our earliest interviews as the SARS-CoV-2 virus got out of China and out of control so quickly was with Pulitzer Prize-winning health and science reporter Laurie Garrett, whose book The Coming Plague predicted everything but exactly where and when it would come from. Here's part of that early conversation. Let's start with how we got here, because there's a couple of things that that happen here. One is the lack of preparation, and another is the confluence of politics, despite In China and the United States, two seemingly different governments, a communist government in China, a conservative Republican government in the United States, and yet many of the same things playing out. And and let's start in China. Do do we have a handle on how all this got started yet?
3: I think we do, though there still are some missing gaps. We'll probably never really know who was the actual patient zero, though we can trace it all the way back to mid-November with a, a definite case in Wuhan. And we'll probably never know what animal was the intermediary between a bat and the, human, the first human case. So there's always going to be some uncertainty about the, the absolute origins, but we do know it was in circulation in Wuhan, starting in roughly about a week before our Thanksgiving, and escalating as Christmas approached. And then in the week between Christmas and New Year's, using American holidays, uh, not Chinese to explain it, It surged silently inside Wuhan, and I say silently not to mean that the officials were unaware of it or doctors were unaware, but the world was largely kept in the dark. And it wasn't officially announced by Chinese authorities in Wuhan until uh, December 31st, a day after physicians led by Li Wenliang posted word to each other online that there was this new, very SARS-like pneumonia in circulation. And were reprimanded for doing so. We're told to sign statements calling themselves rumor mongers and liars. And Li Wenliang, of course, uh, went on to uh, unfortunately get infected with COVID-19 in his work as a physician treating the disease and die of it, becoming quite a national hero inside China.
2: The Chinese government, their initial reaction, as you pointed out, was not only to have uh, doctors punished, but had journalists arrested and kept tamping down the severity of what was going on. And was, was that all politics? I mean, was there, there didn't seem to be any health reason for it.
3: What you can see is that there were a couple things going on. One was the way the Chinese Communist Party has been structured under Xi Jinping's leadership is that everything answers to him, and everything is a reward system based on giving the leader the information the leader wants to hear. And what the leader, of course, wanted to hear in the judgment of local officials was nothing but good news. <laughs> Never relay up the chain that there's a catastrophe because then that you're going to pay a price as a leader for doing so. And so Wuhan authorities, both the official government authorities and the Communist Party, were conveying information up the food chain that said, we've got this under control. It's really no big deal, and it's all about this animal market. And we've shut the market down, and now that it's shut down, there's really nothing to look at behind this curtain. Pay no attention to the man pulling the levers. You know, very wizard of eyes. But obviously, some very different information was simultaneously getting up the food chain. And part of it was the result of a special committee put together of scientists from the China CDC headquarters in Beijing, from Hong Kong University, in uh, Hong Kong and uh, from uh, Guangzhou who went in and looked at the situation and reported back, no, this is not just about the animal market. The market's closed, and there's human-to-human transmission, and this thing is out of control, and it's incredibly dangerous. We know that that got all the way to the fearless leader, Xi Jinping, by January 7th, because on that day, He gave a speech to the state committee, which is essentially talking to the Politburo, saying, I'm stepping in here. There's something serious going on. I'm taking command. So it's almost unheard of for a head of state to take command of what allegedly is a small outbreak of a public health problem in one city in one locality in the country. So he obviously knew by then that this was much bigger than was being officially reported to the World Health Organization then or to anybody outside of Wuhan.
2: Here in the United States, the initial reaction is also to minimize it. Viruses have no particular politics that any of us know of, but treating it as a political question rather than that as, what do we do in terms of health? And so we had that mirrored. And it cost valuable time in doing something about this virus.
3: You can see what Washington knew and what they were willing to do. And we now know that the intelligence community was already firing up alarms up the food chain in Washington, trying to bring awareness that there was a potential catastrophe looming in China that could affect us. We're now aware that the first case that came to the United States started departing Wuhan on January 10th. And he arrives at Seattle SeaTac Airport uh, and goes through airport clearance and then heads home to Sonomish County, which, as we all know now, became the first real focal point of spread of the disease inside the United States. And his infection and the fact that COVID-19 was there becomes well known on January 21st. Well, The point of this timeline is that this all precedes the moment when Donald Trump orders that we lift the drawbridge, fill the moat, and protect Castle America by doing airplane shutdowns and airport screenings and trying to keep the the virus out by imagining that it can't swim the moat, climb the walls, and come into the castle. But of course, it didn't work. The truth of the matter is it was already here And we now can work backwards in other locations and see it was already spreading in the United States, human to human. And it's pretty clear that if it did buy us time, if indeed it did maybe slow things down by two weeks, which is what some modelers say, well, we didn't do anything during those two weeks that would have made us better prepared for the onslaught. There was no sudden Let's get some ventilators. Let's make sure we got test kits that work. Let's figure out an infrastructure and a strategic plan. None of that was done.
2: In the decades that you and I have been talking uh, about public health and, and disease, there's been a, a common theme across the years, across different administrations, across different governments around the world, and this is this lack of preparation.
3: Bill, you and I have had this conversation for you know a couple of decades, and I was writing this starting in the 1980s. And it's very clear that we have a pattern with public health spending generally and with pandemic and epidemic preparedness specifically that reflects a roller coaster cycle of concern uh, by politicians. This is universal, it's every kind of political system. It's not just America, it's everywhere. We get all revved up and worried when we've just had or we're in the middle of an epidemic. And then we just lose interest and the money starts disappearing the further away you get from that epidemic. And we've seen this cycle play out over and over and over. And the problem specifically for public health spending, as I showed in um, my book, Betrayal of Trust, is that it really reflects that moment when public health is most successful. That's when you cut, but they cut the budget. Because public health is a negative. When it's working, there's no data because There's nobody getting unusually ill. There's no unusual outbreaks. There's no sudden surge in mortality in a hospital. So the data says no problem. And while the same is true for the fire department, and when the fire department comes and says, we are happy to report that no one died in a fire in this city in the last week, The mayor doesn't say, oh, good, then we don't need the fire department. We can cut the budget.
2: Pulitzer Prize-winning science reporter Lori Garrett. By the way, one of the stories to follow in the coming year will be whether the infrastructure to deal with these viruses are put permanently in place. Because the fear is, as we get deeper into territory where man will be exposed to viruses not encountered before, we still won't be ready for the next time this happens. But still on our plate is how we have dealt with this, including on the front lines where healthcare workers have given their lives to stay on the job despite being hit with a virus load that their bodies could barely fight. That's next. And America changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. This week we're looking back at some of our most significant reporting, and that would include several conversations with UCLA Emergency Room Specialist Dr. Mel Herbert on what it's like to be on the front line in the ER.
4: We're hearing um, that those docs and nurses that are in the hardest-hit areas really do suffer from a form of PTSD. If your hospital gets overwhelmed and you don't feel like you have the resources to give the best care that you can... There's this type of uh, moral injury that occurs. Like my job is to do the best thing I can for every single patient. And if I can't do that because we're overwhelmed, it really wears on people. And you can hear it in their voices and you can see it in their faces. Our colleagues in New York who have come out of the worst of it are saying that they're having really difficulty sleeping and and nightmares. And it's all of those symptoms, difficulty concentrating, uh, drinking too much, all of the things you think about soldiers returning from war, you're seeing in healthcare workers. And it is post traumatic stress disorder. And these people really need to go and get help. And it's, it's hard, though, in medicine, you know, because we're the doctors, we're supposed to be the ones giving care. Sometimes it's very difficult for healthcare professionals to stop and say, I now need to get some care.
2: Emergency physician Dr. Mel Herbert. We've also kept in touch with vaccine researcher Dr. Peter Hotez. In August, on our broadcast, he told us of a way things could be handled better. You sent the White House a plan to get the country open by October. Can you tell us what it was and whether you've gotten a response.
5: Yeah, this is, uh, I call it my October 1 plan, uh, published it in a journal. I know all your listeners read all the time, microbes and infection. You know, I wanted it in a serious journal. And it's it basically says things are have headed in the wrong direction and we're headed towards catastrophe, 230,000 deaths by the end of October, 300,000 deaths or more by the end of the year. And now we're forcing teachers to work in schools that are unsafe in communities where there's high transmission and it's threatening our homeland security. We don't have to live this way and basically outlines a plan that says that we can bring every state in the nation down to containment mode. And there are different definitions of that. Some say one new case per million residents per day. We may not need to be so restrictive, but bring it down to a, a manageable level. So then we can put on masks and prevent resurgence. We can uh, actually do contact tracing effectively. We can open up our schools safely.
2: Let's talk about reopening the schools. Talk to many teachers, talk to many school board members, and they've all said pretty much the same thing. Look, we want to get back to work, but we want to get back to work that's safe. You're in Houston where things are not good. And what does the school situation look like there?
5: it's just, it's inevitable that teachers, staff will get sick. And, uh, and all it, my, I believe that all it takes is one or two teachers in in the Houston independent school district to uh, wind up in the hospital and it destabilizes everything and people will, will refuse to come to work and it'll shut things down. And that will happen in Miami. And that will happen in Austin and Dallas. It'll happen in Phoenix. It'll happen in Los Angeles And it's very frustrating for me, because if you listen to the White House Coronavirus Task Force, you know, we heard Bob Redfield, Dr. Redfield, you know, appropriately point out the public health benefits of the schools. And we get that. It's not just for education, many low income neighborhoods. Kids depend on schools for their food security and uh, adolescents depend on their for their mental health counseling. Everybody understands that, or anyone who's ever been a parent, I have have four adult kids now understands that. But you have to first do the hard work to bring the virus down to containment mode, as I'm proposing.
2: Looking at the data right now, it looks as if while children who are infected with COVID-19 are more likely to be asymptomatic than older people, less likely to experience actual disease, although some do, Uh, they can still transmit to both children and adults. And one of the things that's an argument about it is like, well, at what age are children less likely to transmit at, say, kindergarten first grade than they are in middle school and high school? What is your take on what you're seeing about the ability of children to spread the disease?
5: Yeah, I think we overthink it a bit. I mean, clearly, the South Koreans have shown that kids over the age of 10 can transmit the virus perfectly well. And even in the little, little little kids, uh, there's a paper out in JAMA Pediatrics showing high amounts of virus in the upper airway and in the nose. And even though they don't have the same force to release virus particles, they can still transmit the virus. Maybe not at the same level, but remember the reality here. Let's say you open up a school in an area where there's lots of transmission. These are not hermetically sealed, right? You've got vendors coming in and out of the building. There will be exposure, and and kids will. Kids will get sick, but more you know importantly, because they're at higher risk of severe disease, the teachers, the cafeteria workers, the staff are, are going to get sick. And all it takes is a few notable teachers or staff to go into the hospital in the school district, and that will completely destabilize the whole situation.
2: You have spent a lot of your career talking about how and researching how disease affects people in poverty, not just around the world, but here in the United States, especially on the Gulf Coast. You're in Houston seeing a a big difference in the way this disease is hitting poor populations, and more well-to-do populations. What are you seeing? What can we do about it? Yeah, no,
5: it's quite. I'm glad you asked that. It's it's very devastating. Um, We're seeing this virus hit, for instance, the Hispanic community very hard and the essential workers especially you know people who can't work remotely can't make their living via skype and zoom who you know are working on construction sites or family-owned businesses bakeries and restaurants and dry cleaners and people working transportation getting hit really hard and you know for instance one of the things the houston city health department does every day they put out a death list of COVID 19 and it, it provide doesn't provide the names because of confidentiality but age and race and ethnicity and every day you read the same thing hispanic 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 black black hispanic 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 these hispanic neighborhoods are just getting hammered by this virus and nobody wants to talk about it it, it's really upsetting what's for instance what's going down not only houston and the other metro areas of texas and across the south but down in south texas uh you know we had 64 deaths in one day last week in hidalgo county in south texas that's not a big county has, I think it's got a population of 800,000 people. And so there's, uh, and we don't have all of the information, but I think this represents historic decimation of Hispanic communities and also a lot of African American communities. And, And that's one of the reasons I've been really speaking out in very strong terms is because, whereas in the beginning of this, I would only focus on the science, and I still focus on the science, but not to point this out, that this is a humanitarian tragedy, I think would be immoral. And, you know, talking to my wife, Anne, you know, she said, look, Peter, if you don't speak out about this, and, and once the full toll among low-income communities comes to light, you'll feel terrible if you hadn't said anything. So there I am speaking about the role of COVID-19 as a devastating health disparity.
2: Vaccine researcher, Dr. Peter Hotes, Tragically, his prediction of over 300,000 deaths by the end of the year was agonizingly correct, which brings us back to prevention and emergency room physician Dr. Mel Herbert and where we are today. All right, so we are now in the midst of this surge that's going on. This is expected to get worse over the next couple of months. And people, as I said when we first started to talk today, are sick of masks. I completely understand that, especially with the holidays coming up. What would you say to convince them of their importance?
4: I would tell them that I get it. I'm sick of this thing. We're all sick of this. I would just like to go to the local restaurant and have a glass of wine and with my wife and not be worried about this thing. But this is actually the worst time so far. We are going into winter. This thing spreads very easily. Hospital capacity could get overwhelmed. And you can help. And it's a simple thing. You can wash your hands. You can physically distance and you can wear the mask. Those things alone, if we look at the modeling again from Washington, if we do those things and we really do them pretty religiously, like 95% of the time when we're out and about, and particularly when we're inside, you can significantly change that curve from the curve is going up and up and up and up and up. And, up. and if we do those things together, if we do those things together, we can significantly drop that down. That will mean that the number of patients going to the hospitals will be significantly less. That will mean that the intensivists and the emergency departments won't be quite so overwhelmed, so the care will be better. That will mean that the probability that somebody will die from this disease is significantly less. The estimates are 100 to 200,000 within the next few months if we do that. So if we think about what happened in the past, we sent our best and brightest and our youngest off to war to go and fight the Nazis many of those people didn't come home. All we're asking this generation to do is be really thorough about doing some really simple things. That mask can save lives. You, a lay person, can help save lives simply by being anal retentive, if I can say that, about wearing the mask. Help out the system. If you don't, the system could very well get overwhelmed. And that's not going to be good for anybody. It's not going to be good for the economy. It's not going to be good for the doctors, nurses. It's not going to be good for you. You're not going to be able to have your surgery if you break your arm. Are you going to be able to get into the emergency department? Do this simple thing. It's not politics. It's a simple public health measure. And you can be part of the solution.
2: Dr. Mel Herbert emergency room physician, and also the head of MRAP, a service where emergency department physicians and nurses from around the world meet to exchange information on what's working and what isn't as patients are brought in, a conversation that flies under the radar but has been significant in saving lives. Now, we do have vaccines getting out there from Moderna and Pfizer and more on the way, but how do they work? How effective are they? And how many people need to take them to get herd immunity? That's ahead on this edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
7: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
2: Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. On this special year-end edition, we're looking back at some of the important conversations we've had since this program started initially as a way to cover the COVID crisis. In that time, the search for vaccines to fight this virus has been an essential part of the story, and the work of biotech companies who have faced the daunting task of coming up with solutions in record times, we talked to Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath, a doctor and molecular immunologist who is CEO of Bio, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, a consortium of biotech companies. She took the job in June, so it's been trial by fire and I talked to her right after Pfizer announced that its vaccine, like Moderna, which came afterwards, was over 90 percent effective just what do those numbers mean?
1: Well, it means that if you are exposed to the virus, um, nine out of 10 people who are exposed to the virus would be protected um, by the vaccine. And they know this because in this case, in Pfizer's case, because they've inoculated 44,000 people in their trial thus far. And they've received two doses of this vaccine because this is a two-dose vaccine. And since that inoculation. They've been able to see how the vaccinated group has responded and the group that got the placebo.
2: The Pfizer vaccine, as you mentioned, like some of the others, requires two shots. More than that, it has to be kept deep frozen until it's ready to use, even more frozen than the proposed Moderna vaccine. We're talking about minus 78 degrees, the temperature of dry ice. In terms of distribution, How much of a problem might that be?
1: Well, let's not kid ourselves. It will be um, a hurdle to surmount. And to that end, Pfizer has been working since they started uh, the research and development project to really also work on their distribution. Um, They have their own distribution channels, unlike many of the other vaccines that are under development right now to fight COVID. And they are confident that using those channels, they'll be able to distribute the vaccine nationally and internationally. But it's going to be very important for us to have more than one option. Um, Like any clinician, I love to have different options um, to offer patients so I can pick the one that's most appropriate for them. And it is good news that at this point, we still have 191 COVID vaccines in development, 10 of which are in late stage clinical trials. And so we're getting close and we're going to have lots of tools in our toolbox when we get there.
2: Are all those vaccines to do the same thing or some, because I know early on people were talking to us about we might need different vaccines for people of different ages, ethnicities, even blood types. Do we know how we're dealing with that?
1: yeah so the good news is they've they've used several different strategies to develop covid vaccines. Some of them have used very traditional um, approach of delivering the protein or the building blocks of the virus directly into um, the human body with adjuvant, something that actually um, is a little bit of an irritant to your immune system and helps you mount a larger, um, more robust immune response. It's thought that those adjuvant-based vaccines might be best in the older populations, which tend to uh, produce a more limited immune response in general. Um, then there are those that are using the mRNA approach, of which Pfizer is one, where you're really delivering something that can temporarily manufacture those building blocks of the COVID virus in a human cell. And that has been incredibly powerful and incredibly fast. And then we have the ones that are using um, something like adenovirus, a typical cold virus to help deliver building blocks of the virus. So we have lots of different technologies that are being employed, lots of different approaches. We fully expect To see that some of those approaches might work best in some subpopulations or those with certain exposure patterns or vulnerabilities. And so it's very good that we have all of these different approaches right now. And we're also seeing a lot of diversity in the clinical trials. You know, in the Pfizer clinical trial, they had over 40% people of color as trial participants. Moderna, who's also just completed enrollment of their clinical trials, saw 35% people of color. Um, They're all testing it in a wide range of age groups. So we'll be able to pick apart this data as it comes in and really tell people which would be the best vaccine for them.
2: You know, this whole mRNA technology is is fascinating because one of the things that the vaccine developers told me early on is hey we've been trying to get an RNA vaccine for a long long time if this technology works we're talking about something that might be a breakthrough not just for covid but for many many diseases
1: no oh, they're absolutely right this has been the holy grail of vaccine development for some time and we've been using it um, as we try to develop vaccines to many emerging Uh, infections as they've come along. It's just that we've had such um, a focused effort in fighting COVID that this may be the moment in history where we break through and find that this technology has really worked out all the kinks and we know how to get it um, out effectively and safely to, to people who need it. And that could be a paradigm changer for vaccine development in the future. Because let's face it, While COVID has been heartbreaking and it has been a huge challenge um, to try to combat this virus, it's not the first um, emerging infection we've seen just in the last decade, for example, and it won't be the last. And so we're going to need tried and true technologies that we can um, turn around quickly uh, when the next threat emerges.
2: The CEO of Bio, Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, who talked to us right as the vaccines came out. So we've dealt with the health issues, but that has not been the only story of COVID. What it's done to our economy is a big part of the story and one we're going to be dealing with for quite a while. We will look at that part of the story in our next segment on America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And in this edition, we've been looking back on the past year of reporting that we've done. So far, we've dealt with health issues, but the COVID story is also a story of financial hardships for individuals, families, and businesses. About a third of America's restaurants have closed, many forever, including famed spots like San Francisco's Cliff House, which survives 157 years of everything else. Many chains that depended on their brick-and-mortar stores are now gone or greatly diminished. We've often gone to CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger for that part of the story because the virus and the economy are inextricably linked.
6: If you talk to economists like I do, or even if you just listen to the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, that's Jerome Powell, they are all linking the two. And you will hear people say things like, the path of the virus will determine the path of the economy. And and it has really turned out that way With March and April, the onset of the virus really hitting the nation hard, it resulted in an almost total shutdown of the nation. And what we saw was a shutdown of the economy. As a result, we saw 22 million jobs vanish March and April, and we saw economic output crater, just dropped. And then as things got better, and you look at this uh, the ensuing months, we started crawling out of it. And so to this point, through October, I was say middle of October at least, what we know is that the U.S. economy has clawed back about two-thirds of all that lost output. And so what we see in this picture is as the virus starts to spike right now, there's a big concern. Because to get us through March and April and basically through the summer – the government stepped in with a lot of support. That was the CARES Act. Maybe it was a check that went out to individuals. It was extended unemployment benefits. It was relief from paying your mortgage or no no evictions allowed. So there's a concern among economists that there could be a lot more economic damage. And that's the fear as we sit here today. I think small businesses are fearful. I think that larger corporations are really optimistic now. And I think that the surge in the stock market that we saw, there's two components to it. One is that the the big fear among investors was that we were going to have an election that didn't it became contested, but for real contested that, you know, it wasn't going to be that the president was saying, oh, I'm challenging results. It was that there really was going to be a razor thin margin and there was going to be no action. And that was one fear. And then the other fear was that you would have a huge sweep among Democrats where you'd have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House. And we didn't get either of those outcomes. We, we actually had the best election week for stocks since 1932. Why? Because we had a Democratic president-elect, and what we have most likely is a Republican Senate, and we have a Democratic House. Now, that divided government means a few things. It means that, number one, there will be very little chance for a Biden administration to raise taxes on corporations There will be very little chance for a Biden administration to do a sweeping spending plan. And number three, that a Biden administration is likely going to take China on, but in a more methodical way without whipsawing corporate America. Come to the vaccine rally, and you start to see that there is optimism that we are going to get beyond this pandemic, and the country will get back on its feet. We should see the U.S. economy recoup that economic output that we lost, get those people back to work, and it's probably all going to happen by the end of next year.
2: So there will probably be, by the time we get through this, changes, though, that may last forever. For instance, we're seeing a lot of companies say, hey, we expect to be back, but a lot of you are working from home and you're telling us that you would rather go back to where you came from in Boise, Idaho and work from there. And we're good with that because that's less financial pressure on you and less financial pressure on us to pay you more.
6: So there could be some real changes for sure that we could start to see. Um, I know in, in some organizations, they're starting to hire consultants to say, what would it look like if everybody worked a 3 day work week in the office and then the other week a 2 day work week and what would that look like and and how would we manage it and would we have um this concept of you know you just work in any desk or would we actually have assigned desks and what and and how do you plan for that i think that there's been a lot of dislocation in the commercial real estate market in a lot of cities because it's the unknown and yet you know we have this funny way we human beings Of bouncing back. I remember after the financial crisis, people would say to me, like, no one's ever going to invest again. They're never going to do it. They're never going to do it. And you know what? They did it.
2: I got to ask you about this and whether you've heard about this. There is a move started by researchers, I think, at Deutsche Bank originally. And now it's kind of spreading out. A lot of economists are talking about it, that there should be a tax. They're saying like 5% tax on people who will still work at home after the pandemic ends. The idea is these people are saving money on commuting and eating out and gasoline taxes, but they should contribute to pay the up cost of the infrastructure with that money no longer coming in from gas taxes and highway tolls. And then that tax money could be used to subsidize people with jobs that you can't do from home that are generally lesser paying, you know, stocking the grocery shelves and things like that. I understand the idea intellectually. I don't say a political future for it.
6: Yeah, I don't necessarily see that. Listen, uh, there are a lot of things here that we should be careful not to read too much into Um, the idea of taxing various organizations or people during the pandemic doesn't seem particularly wise to me. I also think this argues for more stimulus because what's happening is that states and cities, uh, towns, municipalities, they're all under the gun. They're all trying to figure out how can we bring more money in during this pandemic? Well, if the, go- the federal government is supposed to fill that hole when all else is gone, and that's really where we are. And so part of the stimulus has got to include help for states, help for cities, help for municipalities that are really being beaten down by the virus.
2: There are businesses that should bounce back as we control the virus, hopefully through vaccines. There are other businesses, though, that get, you know, kind of mushed up in all of this sometimes in the discussion. But there are businesses like department stores and malls that seem to have been on their way out anyhow. We now have odd situations like the mall owners buying stores like JCPenney out of bankruptcy so they can pay themselves a rent and also keep foot traffic going to the smaller mall stores to keep those places from becoming, you know, empty and haunted.
6: You know, I think uh, I spoke to somebody who's really smart, a marketing professor at NYU named Scott Galloway. Very early in the pandemic, we did a piece for CBS Sunday Morning, and he said something to me that really strikes me as true and has really playing out. And he said, "I believe that this virus will be an accelerant to trends that were already taking place." So imagine if you were thinking hey, department stores are probably not in the greatest shape in the universe uh, a year ago. Well, that's even more so now. In fact, the state of retail has just basically completely accelerated with so much more business going online. And for a while, there was this theory that, you know, well, people don't really feel comfortable buying their groceries online. Well, guess what? They do now. And so I think that the accelerant to the trend that was already in place is absolutely taking hold of retail um, the stores that are doing really smart things and using their online tentacles to serve their their customers are combining curbside pickup are figuring out how to get that last mile delivery done for the cheapest amount of dollars. Those are the ones that are going to survive and thrive in this next period of time.
2: CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. So how have we coped with this year of COVID? Some people, especially here at the holidays, have made the most of it. On CBS This Morning, correspondents Vladimir Dudier, Jerika Duncan, and Jamie Yukis talked with Yale University professor Lori Santos on how we still have a literally remote chance of happiness this holiday.
0: So you've said happy people take time for social connection. How can we do that now, given our current situation?
7: Well, I think most of our social connection, except with those within our family, have to take place virtually, which isn't great. I mean, it's worth acknowledging that this, you know, sucks. This wasn't the holiday season we (laughs) planned. But the cool thing is that we, we have lots of tools that we can use to connect with one another. Right. You know, Zoom happy hours, like, you know, FaceTime New Year's celebrations, like, you know, Netflix parties. These are all ways that we can connect with one another and try to be social, even though we're not physically together. You know,
6: I have a very close-knit family, Lori, and it's been really hard because everyone lives in different places. We've got Canada, Minnesota, Washington State, California. The virtual happy hour got a little old. So this week we ended up doing a scavenger hunt. I was skeptical at first. It turned into one of the most fun things. So as long as you get creative with some of this stuff, I think it really can bring a lot of joy to
3: people.
7: Yeah, I think this is one of the things we forget. You know, we get used to doing Zoom calls at work, you know, and at work it's very formal. You know, you're sitting there, you know, facing each other and stuff, but that's not how family and friend activities work, right? You need to make it a little less formal, right? You need to get a little bit creative. And sometimes that means treating your Zoom call a little bit different than you would at work. You know, these days when I'm Zooming with family members over dinner, like, I get up, you know, if I'm going to like make a drink, (laughs) I bring the cocktail stuff and, you know, get it set up right there, right? Try to bring in the sort of interactions that you would normally have over Zoom, that you normally have in real life over zoom and then you can make that social event much more fun professor santos jerica duncan here i want to switch gears a little bit i know that you talk about your class being one of the toughest ones when you talk about practicing happiness and saying it's not about being aware but it's also about actually doing the things day in and day out to make sure you stay less stressed and happy what number one tip would you give our viewers and to us to remain happy What what should we be practicing well, the easiest one is to take control over something that we can all take control over, which is just our breath. You know, we talk about taking a deep breath when you're anxious, but the research shows that that activates your sympathetic nervous system. Like, it really can allow you to shut off your fight or flight system and sort of turn on that rest and digest system, which we all need. You know, the last thing I always suggest is that when times are tough, it's worth admitting that times are tough. You yeah. know, don't pretend that there's not going to be sadness and anger and anxiety over this holiday season. Really, take time to notice and feel those emotions. That's part of happiness science,
0: too. And Jamie mentioned having a Zoom scavenger hunt, Professor. Uh, What other Zoom activities, for those of us who are a little Zoom fatigued, would you (laughs) offer up?
7: Yeah, well, I think again, it involves getting creative. One thing is to try to do an activity together. Um, this year, this is no spoilers to my family who's watching right now, but I'm mailing out <laughs> little gingerbread kits. And so each of us, you know, in our own town is going to be doing our own gingerbread kit and we can kind of decide who did it better. Um, things like Netflix parties, even games, you know, like that you can play over Zoom. These are just fun ways to kind of get to know each other a little bit better and to make the best use of our time. A, a final way to get creative is really to bring in people you wouldn't normally bring mm, in, right? You know, yeah. our dinner table, lots is kind of constrained, right? You can't bring people right. from all over the world from different time zones.
2: Yale University professor, Lori Santos. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross.
0: Hey, Prime members. You can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey.